I would say that beginning this week, most of the folks in this room, as well as at our various campuses, they're going to increase their relational connections. And it's not just in this room that'll happen through small groups, which is a big focus here. It's going to happen to you in this room and other places through uh, teams your kids have joined. You're going to meet some new families that way. Uh, perhaps some of you have promotions at work. Maybe some of you have new jobs and new responsibilities. It may happen because folks have moved into your neighborhood and you'll meet them. So I just think the fall, generally speaking, whether in church or outside of church, just in life, and especially when you have children at home, it increases our relational connections. And I think if you're just an average Joe like me and living in a city, you'd say that's typically true. What's also true is that when that occurs, the likelihood of relational conflict increases. Could somebody say amen to that? You are suddenly within new arenas that involve sports, and sports usually brings out the worst of people. <laughs> or you're in a new environment at your job, and so you've got a new supervisor or a new team. Perhaps it's in the neighborhood and someone moved in, and they're really different than you. It could be all kinds of arenas, but I've just noticed that in seasons when our relational connections increase, the likelihood of relational conflict increases. Thanks, Todd. Appreciate the good news this morning, right? <laughs> well, Philippians 4, to the rescue. Take your Bibles, would you? Turn to Philippians chapter 4. And let us be especially practical today. Every week the Word of God is practical. But today, in an unusually timely way, the Bible will meet us at this place of relational conflict. I think mainly within the church. So let's keep the text and the context in view. But its principles will be an umbrella over life in general. As we think about how we get along with others, how we learn to agree with others. Here's a good word that I think will kind of blanket this week's focus and next week's. What Paul takes aim at in the first part of Philippians 4, between verses 2 and 9, is the concept of peace. Say that with me. Peace. In verses 2 to 7, he really looks at relational peace. The type of uh, calmness that exists between people. He uses the word agree in the text. Agreement here on something more important than uh, our preferences or opinions, but agreement in what matters most. And he's going to talk about how to accomplish that, how to experience that relational peace. And then verses 8 and 9, he really looks at personal peace. In all frankness, I have found that if the first one's not working well, I find the second one hard to find as two. Would you agree with that? And so there's a real focus on the idea of peace. In fact, let me show you why I say this. Do you see the end of verse 7? Just notice, uh, excuse me, the beginning of verse 7. Just notice the first five words, and the peace of God. Do you see that, verse 7, first five words? Now look at the end of verse 9, almost the last five words and the God of peace. So 
verse 7 begins with the peace of God. Verse 9 ends with the God of peace. How many of you would say you agree with me now? I think the theme that Paul's after is peace, wouldn't you? And he's going to talk about relational peace and then personal peace. What do you say we dive into understanding his um, words about relational peace just this week? We'll tackle verses 2 to 7. My goal today is to just look at these first few verses in two sections. I want to see 2, 3, and 4. And as we read those, we'll see what the passage says, the point it makes, and a simple practice tip we can take home. We'll do that with two through four, and then for five to seven, we'll see what the passage says, the point it makes, and we'll provide a little practice tip. Once we see both these sections that talk about relational peace, we'll kind of wrap things up with a simple take-home truth, and then we'll spend some time praying to that end as we wrap up before communion. So let's get going, shall we? Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, both campuses, all locations, let's look into the Word. It's the Word, say it, church, it's the Word that does the work. Let's get our eyes on the text together. Follow with me. Verse 2, I urge, the word there is to call alongside of, to come up beside someone and exhort them to a posture. So he's saying, I'm coming right alongside you, Euodia and Syntyche, two women in the church at Philippi. I'm right there with you. I'm exhorting you. I'm calling you to agree in the Lord. By the way, I would track the phrase in the Lord through Paul's writings. It's mentioned at least three or four times in this book. Um, there may be a different verb, but I love the phrase in the Lord as Paul's way of saying to us, this is how it's done. He's always bringing us back to the gospel, to the real fuel for our actions. Here he says, I want to call you to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. Now, who's the true partner? Is it the church at Philippi collectively? Perhaps. Is the phrase true partner actually someone's name? And you say, well, that's an odd name. Hi, I'm true partner. I'm Todd Siles. That, I don't mean it that way. It's one word in the original language, and some commentators see it as perhaps an actual name. I won't go to the trouble of trying to pronounce it. But it's a legitimate view that perhaps it's a name... And the name means partner or yoke fellow or someone who sides up with you in a situation to help you through it. Take your pick. It's not going to change the point of the text. He simply says here, whoever this person is, he wants their help in getting these women to agree in the Lord. And notice what he says about these women. They are gospel contenders and they worked with Paul. So we're not talking about folks who are rebellious, unsaved. They're not contentious about trivial things. They've actually been contenders for the gospel. But there is a point of disagreement, apparently, between these two women. And Paul's urging them for the sake of the gospel, which they've contended for. My sin says, Paul's saying, let's not forget what matters most. You've been super. You've been excellent at being a a laborer and a garter and a defender of the gospel. Now, don't get distracted by your disagreement. Don't get detoured by a preferential issue. And my, my sense also is this, the fact that it's not mentioned means it's probably minor and preferential. 
You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentioned several areas in the church that were of, of great importance that they were disagreeing on and they weren't sure what to do. And so he listed them out specifically here. He doesn't go to the trouble to tell us what it is. I think it's because it wasn't a big deal, but there was some disagreement about it. He's saying, listen, both you ladies, you love Jesus. You've been saved by God. You're, you're contenders for the gospel. Now, now, let's figure this out over here because this contending for the gospel matters way more than this small disagreement here. And he's asking for help from the church or at least from someone in the church. He says they're gospel contenders. And then he mentions Clement, who is also a gospel contender because he must have worked with Paul at some point. And then he enlarges the group. Notice the end of verse 3. He says, and the rest of my co-workers... In other words, he's calling for all kinds of help to make sure these women agree in the Lord and aren't a distraction to gospel progress. He doesn't want the partnership to dissolve. And notice how he describes not only these two women, not only the true partner, not only Clement, all the rest of his co-workers, they're, they're described as those whose names are in the book of life. And this is why I believe he says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Often we take that verse and we pluck it out of its context and we, and I don't think that's wrong to apply it to other situations. But in this context, he's saying, here's why you should rejoice. Because even in times where there's disagreement, you actually are born again by God. You're saved. You're a child of his. Like that's what you should rejoice in. You're eternal status as a child of God. That's the bigger issue. And so I think the first thing Paul does here is he, he says, if you want to experience peace relationally, have an eternal perspective about the saints. Just jot that down in your journals, would you? You have some place to write. Maybe you want to circle certain words in the text. The first thing he encourages these ladies to do, and I think all those in this church, is to have an eternal perspective about the saints. In other words, their, their names are written in the book of life. There's a vertical perspective taking place that's more important then and overrides the, the horizontal one that's about preferences. There's something bigger happening. In other words, don't see one another as enemies see one another as family. And I think this really goes into the context because what did Paul do in verse one? He used very deep familial terms to talk about how much he loved them, didn't he? And now he's asking for that to spread to those in the church. He says, Yodia and Syntyche agree. And as you're working this out, remember, both of you were born again. Your names are in the book of life, just as Clements is and the other true yoke fellow and all those who labored with us. We're on the same team. We're in the same family. And I especially love the way Paul here doesn't try to run from the fact that there's disagreement, but he does emphasize that there's something more important than the minor preferential disagreement. And that is this. That it's a gospel that has saved us. There's a savior that we know and love and he's called us his children. He's made us his own. We're in the book of life. 
So let's rejoice over that. Let's be thankful and celebrate our unity while we figure out all the ways we have a lot of variety, right? And can we be frank? That's typically where our disagreement comes in. It's usually in the vast amount of diversity and variety, the fact that we're all really different. Sometimes you let that get under our skin and it causes us to think this is really important. And Paul here is saying we have to begin to appreciate and accept and enjoy our variety within biblical parameters and focus on the fact that even with all that variety and all that diversity, there is unity in the fact that we belong to God. This is a beautiful way to approach relational peace. In other words, instead of thinking about infractions, think about identity. So you've got to sit down with someone and talk about a sore subject, an area of disagreement, an area that you see differently. When you enter that conversation, try to remember first, this is a brother or sister. They're not my enemy. They're my family. Now, I want to um, pause here and share with you an answer to a question that came in while I was processing this and thinking through this in my own head, but also from some close friends. They said, Todd, let's be honest. Even when that occurs, often disagreement remains. Wouldn't you agree with that? We agree that disagreement remains. How's that for a choice of words, right? I mean, sometimes you approach someone with a, a humble heart. You know they're in your family. But at the end of the conversation, you do see something differently. And it's not wrong that you do, but it has kind of, it, it's a gap in how you perceive and your perspective, and even how you may operate in some areas. Not that one of the ways is sin, but it does put you on different pages, how many of you have been there before? Raise your hand. Okay, if your hand's not up, you, you, your hand should be up. All of us have been there. Even sometimes with close friends. This is sometimes what happens over time. As you get closer and closer, then you hit a bump and you realize, oh, as I've got to know you more, I realize you see this issue or you approach this situation in this way. And I, I would never do it that way. And so it, sometimes it causes a gap between previously close friends. Not that a sin was involved, but just honest differences. So the question to me was, Todd, what do you do in a church when that happens? They've approached each other as family, but there's honest and real differences. Here's what I would say to you. And I've seen this work on both ends in my life. I do not speak to you as an authoritative pastor only today, whose authority comes from the word, not from myself. I speak to you as a fellow sheep, who has lived this out on both ends. My belief, and is based in a principle of God's word, is that within the church, when you sit down as family and try to talk it out and you realize we just see it differently, then you have to adopt the posture of following the leader. That's hard to hear, isn't it? But there are times when it won't be like you had hoped. The decision won't exactly be what you thought it should be. What do you do then? You follow your leaders. You humbly say, you know, it wasn't my call to make, but I've chosen to be part of this spiritual family. 
there are leaders. There's a structure that God has put into place. And so I've said my piece, so to speak. I've done what I've come to lean in, but it's not my call to make, so I'll humbly follow. This is why I've said to you for years, often following is harder than leading. Now, my experience has been, I've heard that from our elders at different times. You probably don't know about most of those because we desire and do speak as one. But in the room, often, there's intense conversation about the best thing to do. And it's not always, well, let's just do what Todd says. Because there's an equality and a plurality of authority. Not always of influence, but there is one of authority. And at the end of the day, we pray, we seek the Lord, whether it's with our deacons, our staff, our elders. Maybe it's with your small group. Any environment, there needs to be a leader who at some point has to make the call. And can I tell you something that you know? Not everyone agrees with every decision a leader makes. When that occurs, if you say, well, I've had good conversations, it didn't go like I thought it would, to take your toys and go home is just really one mark of immaturity. And so we have to be willing to enter into conversations with our family, knowing that at the end of the day, not everyone can get their way. And so what do we do if you are on the side where on this occasion it didn't go like I thought it should? I say the Bible teaches follow your leaders. If you're the leader in that situation, be cognizant that it's hard for some people to follow every decision. Be sensitive. Try to build long runways. Try to communicate in advance. Do the best you can to say, hey, I know you don't see this quite like I do. But with everything considered, we feel like this is the best to move. Try to ask for them, to, to, for their support in a humble way. And you deliver the news humbly. That's the best answer I can give you for what do you do when you've tried to talk it out and you still disagree. I think the biblical principle is we follow our leaders. I don't know if you like that or not. There are times I don't like that. <laughs> But I have found that it works, that God honors humble followership as well as humble leadership. I won't belabor this point, but I'll just say again to you, I've experienced this on multiple fronts from both sides, even before we planted our church, after we planted. And so this is not an easy subject, agreeing in the Lord, finding places we can stick together and see each other as family and focus on what matters most, even when we know we disagree. That's a hard process. It's not easily attained. But guess what? We can do it in the Lord. Amen, church? We can agree in the Lord. And I think one of the ways that God has allowed that to happen and, and shows us how to experience it is by following our leaders, having conversations, leading in humility, all of that, yes. But at the end of the day, at some point, a decision has to be made. And when it is, those who don't like that decision have to follow humbly. Because probably next time you'll like the decision and then you can encourage your brothers and sisters, hey, don't quit just because it didn't go like you thought it should go. It does seem to often be, you know, up and down. And that's church life sometimes. So I want to encourage you. Let's keep walking together striving to agree in the Lord by 
seeing each other, not as enemies, but as a family. In fact, that's the practice tip there. See one another as your family, not your enemy. Can we move on to the next set of verses? It's five to seven. Let's read these together. We follow with me. He then says, let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Now, this is an interesting verse because the word graciousness could be translated reasonableness. Some older translations say moderation. Uh, it has the idea that this is kind of the posture you present. That's the words that I use to describe what this word means. And it's translated very differently from, from uh, translation to translation. But I think the common meaning is this. Since you can rejoice that your names are written in the book of life, and that your family, and that you can settle your preferences in some way, surely. Because really, God's got your name written in His book of life. This is a matter of rejoicing. So let that posture, let that be known to everyone that the Lord is at hand. In other words, who's really in control of your life? It's not the person you're disagreeing with, regardless of how that ends up. It's the Lord. He's at hand. So let that be a source of being gracious to people, if you use this translation and this word, or let that be your um, reasonableness, to use another translation. Let this be your posture that even in times of disagreement and trying to settle and agree in the Lord, my posture is going to be one of gentleness, graciousness, and reasonableness. Here's why. Because regardless of how this ends, the Lord is at hand. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean the Lord is near or that the Lord is coming? Because often in the New Testament, when something's at hand, the writers mean to say it's on the way. So he may be referring to the Lord's coming. It's at hand. It's the next thing we're waiting for. That could be a source of, uh, that would cause you to have a reasonable posture and a gracious de a demeanor, right? It could be that the Lord is near. That could also be a well from which you draw to make sure that your posture is reasonable and gracious and moderate. I think he probably had both in mind. Because the Lord, as we sang this morning, is near. He is always with us. But guess what? He is coming. And so both are true. And that should affect our uh, posture towards others, and I think in the context, especially those that we know we have to learn how to agree in the Lord. Let's be reasonable and gracious. Why? Because the Lord is near us. The Lord is coming. And in that day, this preferential thing won't matter at all. I'm not saying we have a glib attitude and overlook honest things, but they don't dominate our life because we have a future perspective about something far more important. And that's the consummation of God's kingdom. Let's keep reading, shall we? He says, the Lord is near. So I like the way verse six just follows. Don't worry about anything. If you know the Lord is near and that he's coming, then let's not worry about anything. Instead, what does he say next? And everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present these requests, your requests to God. I think the sense of the text may be this. It's right to figure out how to agree in the Lord, but at some point you want to take that issue higher. <laughs> and you want to give all those concerns and cares to God. 
So he says in everything, we're not, like we don't have an out here. There's no quota for like, well, I'm going to keep these three to myself. He says in everything, in prayer and petitioning, or the word can be supplication or requesting. He said, you just bring these to God. So just notice this. I think the second principle he gives us for really experiencing relational peace is to engage in, in, in grateful prayer about our situations. We're going to say it again today. Our first and best action is what? Prayer. We say this often as well. It's not our only action, true? Often your feet and your hands need to get to work. But that's after our knees have been bent and our hands have been raised and we've talked to God about our situation. We bring everything to God in prayer. This is one of the keys to experiencing relational peace. This is very similar to Paul's words to the Thessalonian believers when he in three words said this, pray without ceasing. And you may hear that and think, well, Todd, I have to go to work. I've got to fix dinner. I've got to load the dishwasher. I've got to change the oil. I've got to mow the grass. Like, I don't know how I can just always be on my knees. I've got things I've got to do. That's not what Paul meant. Paul's speaking here of a mindset where you can actually do two things at one time. You can mow the grass and be praying. You can load the dishwasher and be praying. You can be driving to work and be praying. You can be making copies and be praying. Now, it may take some practice for some of these, right? But let me give you biblical proof you can do this. In Nehemiah chapter 1, I believe it's chapter 1, it may be chapter 2, but in the very beginning part of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is so burdened, distressed about his homeland that he goes to see the king about what he needs. Can he get a leave of absence? Can he get some supplies? And the Bible says explicitly about Nehemiah. Nehemiah spoke to the king and talked to the Lord. If you read the narrative, it's like he's doing two things at one time. He's talking horizontally to the king and in his mind and heart he's saying, God, you got to help me right now. So guess what? You can do that too. You can engage with your kids and pray for your children. You can settle something with your spouse and pray they see it your way at the same time, right? <laughs> you can drive and think about the day ahead and pray for it. You can mow the grass, load the dishwasher, change the oil, clean the house. Name your activity. It's possible to do that while you're in the mindset of asking God for his continuous help. This is what's going on here. Having grateful prayer about our situations. And I love the way Paul inserts Thanksgiving here because I think his aim is this. And I'm just going to kind of get into heads, to Paul's head for a bit. You know, our goal here every week is to try to make sure you understand what the point of the author was to those people. And I think he's inserting this idea of Thanksgiving to say this. Your temptation will be to complain about the people you're not agreeing with. To get way too horizontal and to think this is a, a detriment and a hurdle. And this is why things aren't good in your life. 
I think Paul inserts this simple phrase, hey, rejoice, your name's in the book of life, see him as family, and so let that affect your posture, be reasonable and gracious, and then bring everything to God. That's way more important than just to people. And as you do, be sure to be thankful because it's really not the hurdle you think it is. It's not ruining your life. It's not the, the thing that's you know causing you to be sad. It's, he's saying there's so much to be thankful for. So with thanksgiving, bring everything to God. When we do that, when we have a grateful prayer posture about all of our situations, we will begin to experience relational peace. It may be that you never agree perfectly, but you can still walk together at some level of unity because you have a higher view about what God is doing. Your posture is very uh, approachable, gracious, reasonable. And so I think these are, like I said, just very practical, down to earth, and yet quite theological uh, principles for how to experience and pursue relational peace. Notice to end this section of just seeing the text, what he promises will happen at the end of in verse 7. When we see each other as family, and when we are willing to pray at all times. When perspective and prayer are priorities for us, he says this, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The word guard there means to defend, to stave off, to ward away. And so he says here that this peace of God is not only surpassing, it's surrounding. It'll put a guard up around your relationships. The word you here, it's plural. Paul is saying to the church at large, if you will have the right perspective about who's with you in this gospel fight, so to speak, this, this contending for the faith, that they're your family, not your enemy, and to stand on what's most important and to try to figure out what's less important. If you'll know who they really are, their names are in the book of life with yours. They're your family. And if you'll bring everything to God in prayer with thanksgiving, these two elements will help you experience the surrounding and surpassing peace of God, which will ward off and defend you against division. This is why I say this principle works in the church for sure. This is written to a church. It's how we should operate, seeing each other with the right perspective, an eternal perspective, and then praying about everything gratefully. It helps us experience God's peace and it wards, uh, you know, off division. But this works in families. Husbands, you listening to me? Wives, you hearing me? This works in your marriage. My sense is that, just like churches, families and marriages need relational peace. Two biblical strategies are to have the right perspective about the person you're talking to, an eternal one. That's my brother or sister whose name's in the book of life with mine. And then to make sure that prayer undergirds everything. And that it's the top priority. We're giving God all of these issues and requests and petitions. We're thanking him. Perspective and prayer. Those are biblical and I would say theologically practical strategies 
for really experiencing relational peace, especially in the church, but in other arenas as well, where you're working with and dealing with God's people. So let's take these few verses and let's kind of wrap these principles and passages in these practice tips. Let's just kind of uh, put into a single sentence. I'm making some assumptions here, so work with me. Don't change the context of the message. You with me? You'll see what I mean. Here's the take-home truth today. Perspective and prayer enable us to experience God's peace in our relationships. Now, don't change perspective there to say, oh, he means I've got to have the right attitude about, fill the blank in. The point is perspective about who you're talking to. Are you with me? Remember the context, that they're our family, not our enemy. Their name's in the book of life along with yours. They're brother or sister. And, of course, prayer, bringing everything to God with gratefulness. So I am kind of assuming you're going to keep the context of the passage as well as this message in mind. But I wanted to keep it short and simple for my sake and yours. So can we just say this together? For those of us who really want to continue to pursue relational peace in this time when our relational connections are going to increase, as well as the likelihood of relational conflict, how timely that God would give us these two theologically practical strategies for pursuing relational peace. And here they are. Say it with me, church. Perspective and prayer enable us to experience God's peace in our relationships. And I was going to add two words. I was going to say God's surpassing and surrounding peace. But at some point, you just can't modify everything, right? You can't add adjectives glory. I would love to, but it's so long and it gets complicated. We'll just keep it simple. And this is such a wonderful, comforting biblical truth. Right out of Philippians 4, where Paul is aiming his entire letter at his partners. And he doesn't want to see the partnership dissolved or dismantled or disintegrated. And so he says, hey, sisters, Find a way to agree. Church, help them agree because you're all in the same family. Your names are in the book of life. On this you should rejoice. And knowing that should help you set a posture that God's near. He's coming. He's close. That should cause you to be reasonable and understanding. Even in decisions that maybe are hard, we, we can relay those and accept those in ways that, that show us, you know, we trust God more than we do men. And so we're going to lift everything to God in prayer. And when those two things occur, and God's peace will surround and surpass our understanding, will surround our body, and it will help us relate to each other in peaceful ways. I, I long for that. And I, I, to be quite frank with you, I think we have a high level of unity and peace in our church. I thank God for that. It's by His grace. I pray it stays. I get asked often when I'm with other pastors, like, hey, how's it going? And I'll say, you know, right now, God's favor is just very evident. There's a pervasive joy in our church. And I don't know why, but I'm trying not to mess it up. And I want it to last until I'm done. That's kind of what I say to him. Like, I don't have an answer for why there is such a high level of unity. I think our leaders work hard to maintain it. I think our church is very humble in general. I think all those things are true. But at some point, you can't explain the work of God. You just live in it, right? And I want to commend you. I do feel like there's... A high level of unity and peace. But can we be honest that exceptions are not a good strategy? And to assume, well, they'll just always stay that way. So I'll be cranky now. That's a terrible idea. So let us realize that it is by God's grace. And these are means of grace for experiencing peace relationally within the body. The right perspective about one another, an eternal perspective. And then prayer is a top priority. When we 
embrace those. I think that's one of the ways God just says, I'll give you guys peace. I'll surround you with the kind of peace you can't explain so you can continue to walk together in the mission of God. As I thought about these verses, and, and in all frankness, I just reveled in joy over you several days. I was very thankful that God has placed me here as one of your pastors. And I think our elders, each week when we meet and pray, we, um, we, we are glad that God has put us here to shepherd with you and among you. But apart from that, I did have something else come to my mind multiple times in just digesting these verses and thinking about you. And it, it was my parents, Roger and Betty Stiles. They live in Ringgold, Georgia, which is just outside Chattanooga. That's where I'm from. That's where I grew up. Um, and I, I was thinking, why are my parents coming to mind so much as I read this passage? And, and the answer is a number. The answer is a number. The number's 49. That's how long they've been a member of their church. 49 years. Now, here's what I'm going to say to you about that. And they'll see this later today. So I'm going to say this to you, mom and dad, as well about that. I'm pretty sure at some point they were Yodia or Sintiki. And folks said to Roger and Betty, you guys got to find a way to agree with this other couple. Or Roger, you got to find a way to agree with this man. Or Betty, you got to find a way to agree. I'm sure they were exhorted by yoke fellows and, you know, a modern day Clement and all the other gospel contenders like, hey, figure this out. I'm also pretty sure at times they were the yoke fellow who would come along someone and say, hey, for the sake of the mission of God, you and your friend, y'all got to figure this out. You guys got to agree at some level. I'm sure they were probably like Clement, contending for the gospel. They're in that band of, of, of uh, other laborers, and their names are in the book of life. Like, I thought about what's it like to be in one church 49 years? You've probably been all of these people, right? And what I love about my mom and dad's church membership profile is that at every turn, regardless of which person they may have kind of been emulating, for good or worse, decisions they liked or didn't like, what never was an option was like, you know what? We're out of here. And I'm not saying there aren't reasons to leave a church. But most of us leave way too soon. I'm a huge fan of long-term church membership, of figuring it out. And I think I now realize I probably got that from my parents. So why was I so joyful in this text? In addition to thinking about all God's doing in your life and among us, it's because I grew up in a home where every week at church, it was this attitude, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. We're going to find a way to agree in the Lord. And so I'll call my parents later tonight or maybe tomorrow. And at some point I'll ask them this. Hey, how'd it go Sunday? Oh, it was fantastic. It was great. There's so much joy. And they're going to have the most positive things to say. And I know there's probably issues and bumps and hurdles. But their perspective about 
their family and their commitment to prayer leads them to this joyful, reasonable, gracious posture about their partners in the gospel. Can I urge you and can I urge myself this week to see each other as family and not enemy, to have that eternal perspective about them, and then even while we talk about things, to make sure that we lift it up to God before and after and give Him everything with thanksgiving. Perspective and prayer, that's the avenue to relational peace. What do you say we walk on that road?